Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. morning I'm, I'm hesitant to ask how you are are you <laughs> um are you wanting some real-time anger uh rage emotions on our podcast since that, that since that's this week's topic <laughs> well i know that um we're recording this on wednesday and that last night your favorite baseball team in the whole world lost <laughs> the first game of the world series yeah. and I'm just concerned about you being in such deep grief. Insensitive. You know, one of the stages of grief is anger. And <laughs> I definitely think they get paid way too much to have this kind of impact on, on my emotions. <laughs> so um, my dog's feeling some of that too right now. Look at her. She's letting us know yeah. how she feels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm okay. I'm disappointed. And we got a lot of baseball left to play, so it's going to yeah. be okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, we are going on Sunday in Ordinary Life to talk about anger and rage. And uh, we're doing that because we're taking our guidance from John Sanford's book, Mystical Christianity, a commentary on the Gospel of John. And, um, you know, um, I have not talked to a lot of people about the content of what we're doing, but I do know that it is somewhat surprising for people to, who, have, who have some considerable church background or church attendance background to hear that many of the things that are alluded to in the Gospels as being historical happenings are creations by the, the Gospel writers. Yeah. And so neither Sanford nor Spong uh, think that the so-called cleansing of the temple episode ever happened. Well, I read something the other day. I think it might have been on Progressive Christianity, the... Um website that we both like that Matthew Fox kind of started um, that probably most of the things in the Bible aren't true <laughs> you know and so they are, they, they, let's, say they, let's say that they aren't factual yes yeah that's that's a better way to to say it yeah um, and and he the invitation was kind of like and once we can kind of get past that disappointment that maybe things didn't happen literally as as it is spelled out in the biblical text, the entire biblical text, then maybe we might actually start to learn the wisdom from it. Um, and you know, I think if I just sort of step back and say, like, as a literary choice, as a um, as a order of operations choice, I find it interesting that in John we have first the first sign, which we both related to as one of inviting more joy, celebration, and community. In our mm -hmm. understanding of God. And then the second sign is about anger. I just think that's interesting. It's an interesting kind of um, opposite mirror image of two aspects, two faces, if you will, 
of sacred mystery. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Matthew, in Mark, Matthew and Luke, the cleansing of the temple comes very, very late in the Jesus narrative and is given as the straw that broke the camel's back that led to the execution of Jesus. Mm-hmm. In John, the cleansing of the temple happens very, very early in the ministry of Jesus. And the straw that broke the camel's back in John was the story about the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And we'll get to that in due time. Mm-hmm. Um, it will do this one this week on anger and rage. I have, uh, as you know, I just finished reading um, Brian McLaren's book, Belief Beyond Doubt, or Belief After Doubt. And in the process of finishing that book and reading the end notes and all that, I found out that Brian McLaren has a couple of things on his website that you can buy that are not in bookstores and not readily available through Amazon. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he has, which I am in the process of reading, is a little ebook called Why Don't They Get It? Hmm. And it's about what he thinks are the 10 biases that we all have, all of us, without exception, Hmm. to one degree or another, that cause us not to see another person or another group's point of view. And one of his key points in this is, uh, after listing what all the 10 biases are, He says that one of the key things that causes people to embrace these biases are intense emotions like anger and fear. So if we're in the grips of anger, rage, fear, we can't think clearly. We can't see clearly. Mm -hmm. Well, there's one of the things that we briefly kind of talked about was I think there's such a very gossamer thin thread between fear and anger. Um, I experience it as a parent when I fear my children's well-being. Um, that's when I experience this flashes of anger. Um, I think I've shared this story with you that the only time I've ever popped my youngest son on the bottom was when I saw him drinking a bottle that labeled poison, you know, and instead of having a sort of rational response to that. I popped him on the bottom to get him to drop the bottle. I didn't find words. I couldn't find um, a rational thought in my mind. I just had fear. And that fear came out as anger expressed toward him. Um, And I think that's one of the most human experiences I can think of is that relationship between fear and anger. So I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, what, what was there for Jesus? You know, like what, what was the fear, if anything? Um, was it just a pure expression of anger about something else, about something completely justifiable? Or was it exhaustion? I was just reading last night um, accounts of um, Martin Luther King close to the end of his public ministry, which was short-lived as he was also executed at a young age how he dealt with these intense emotions of, of anger and um, depression. So he would swing between anger 
and depression. And depression is also related to anger. So what's your take on why Jesus was, what fueled that? Well, I, I will uh, amplify more on this Sunday, but let's assume that um, there is some historicity behind this story. Let's just assume that. Um, and it doesn't matter because it, even if there's not, even if it is a creation by the writers of John, it nonetheless captures, I think, um, the heart and essence of Jesus' concern. According to the story, the upset that Jesus has when he goes and sees the money changers and the sellers of animals in the temple courtyard, he says, you have made of my father's house a den of thieves. And according to John Dominic Crossan, what that meant was that their behavior and activity was robbing the widows and orphans, the least of these, of a fair share of goods and services. Hmm. And um, that really angered Jesus. He, he reserves his ire for those who do not think that they are guilty of violating any of the Jewish laws having to do with taking care of the least of these. Mm -hmm. That was his hot spot. And that's what you see, I think, going on in, in this story. Hmm. You know, so it's a justice issue then. It's, um, it, is a, it is a justice yeah. issue. And, and I've, I, I was thinking about this also just in reading last night and kind of thinking about what fuels people's longing for justice and equity is very often anger, anger at the way things are, um, frustration that things aren't better. And I think that anger at the way things were fueled the civil rights movement. I also think love did. You know, it was, it was love of a people, love for a people, love of an idea about democracy and freedom that had not yet been fulfilled. I think that's true about Black Lives Matter movement. Um, she says that the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement says that it began as a love letter to Black people to say, we matter. I love you. I love us. And that spawned a movement that fueled by love, but also with some kind of righteous anger about things as they are, and they can be better. And we still got a vision to fulfill about a more just, equitable, and inclusive society. Um, so I just, I just find that sort of emotional string very interesting where anger is concerned, that it's often fear-based, there's often, often love behind what I would call productive displays of anger. Um, when we can fuel our anger with love, then we are working towards something that is more loving. You know, mm -hmm. anger can be utilized to, to light fires, can be utilized to get people in motion. Um, well, we, I, I intend to talk about some of this, um, the rage that is built into the American societal system 
sometimes uh, violence comes in a very velvet glove, mm -hmm. and and that comes in our economic system that disenfranchises people, the white male supremacy position uh, is practiced in this country by people who would really take offense if you were to call them white supremacists. Mm -hmm. But Martin Luther King would be in the tr tradition of Jesus, who was in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets. And the uh, Hebrew prophets exercise a thing that can be called prophetic rage. Mm -hmm. So if you're familiar with the, the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, they express some pretty intense anger mm. about the way that, as they saw it, God's people had gone away from um, the inclusive, fair justice that is actually written into the Jewish laws. Yeah. And so this symbolically speaking, this um, Messiah figure restores the image of God, but also of humanity, that humanity can operate out. I was about to say outside of, but that's not what I mean. In my mind, I guess I think that one of the most powerful things, and I said this last Sunday, that, that teaches me about Jesus is, is these displays of his humanity. I, I have never, ever, ever related to the image of Jesus as sinless and perfect. Um, that's not how we are. We're not sinless and perfect. We're, we're overcoming divide. We're overcoming inequity all the time. We're addressing um, unfairness all the time in our world and in our own relationships. And I think the restoration that Jesus provides is just that this is a very human project. This, this business of love, of loving each other a little harder, a little better, demanding more of each other. Um, I guess that's what we call righteous anger, right? We, so often Jesus's anger in the temple is referred to as righteous anger, holy anger. Yeah, I, I you know, the, there's a sociological uh, question that I, I keep coming back to in my own thinking about how systems are changed. Nobody in power gives up power willingly. And so oppressive systems uh, have to be destroyed. They have to be dismantled. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that involves some behavior that looks pretty violent and looks pretty angry and looks pretty destructive. Yeah. I think when the system is working for us, um, when we're looking at the, what we might call displays of anger um, or rage from inside of the system, it's very easy to judge them as, as ooh, that's, that's a little too angry. I think there's been a lot of backlash towards protests over the last two years, for example, um, Black Lives Matter protests and post George Floyd's murder. Um, got a lot of pushback for, oh, they're so angry. And, but I think that it's really easy to, to call that, to be uncomfortable with that anger when, when we're on the inside of a system benefiting from it. For me personally, it was kind of, I experienced a lot of anger when I realized that the system didn't work the way I was taught that it did. 
And there was this feeling of like, I've been lied to, right? And people Mm -hmm. in different experiences than I am, um, who have not grown up in a white middle-class body or circumstance have, have known that for a long time. And so there's a kind of like patting on the head, like, well, yeah, welcome to the club. Like, you know, I'm so glad your eyes have been opened, but there was and is a deep sense of sadness, grief, and even anger about realizing that what I was taught isn't necessarily true. So uh, I wonder if you would be willing to engage me in a conversation for about 10 minutes about Mm -hmm. critical race theory. Yeah. Because... This would this would give us an example. Critical race theory has become a flashpoint mm-hmm. in national conversation right now. I read in the Houston Chronicle this morning that um, some high official in Texas education is going to have school libraries checked and purged of certain kinds of books if they refer to critical race theory. For people who are listening to this podcast who really don't know what critical race theory is, Mm -hmm. can you give us a good definition of it? Sure, I can try. Um, So critical race theory began as kind of um, a legal construct, right? It was a way that we could understand how power, privilege, and, and, and law was working for or against us based on our race experience. And, and so lawmakers and legislators were looking at, well, does so things like affirmative action, um, students' ability to get into college is sometimes prohibited by the race and or the class that they grew up in, right? Um, so we implement a law like affirmative action to say we need more balance in this education system. So, criti- so critical race theory was a, a legal construct. It's now become, a, I think, a sociological and maybe even dipping into a ph- philo- philosophical construct. The reason it's hard to call it philosophy is because race is a lived, specific experience. Philosophy likes to stay in the universal and the eternal. Does that make sense? Um, so I think critical race theory now has several different arms, and I'm not going to get name all of them probably spontaneously, but one of them is critical whiteness studies. How do we understand, and some of this critical whiteness studies was not fueled by white folks, but by non-white folks saying, you guys need a mirror. You need to know how the powers that be are experienced by those of us who are not participants in them. So there's critical whiteness studies. And now more white people are participating in that reflective, self-critical, self-conscious, if you will, with a desire to to change. There's also um, that critical, now there's an emerging arm of it that is critical anti-racist theory. Can we, and, and so one of the things about theory is that it stays in the realm of the mind, right? As long as we're talking theory, we're just talking about what do you think about critical race theory? What do you think about whiteness, blackness, uh, Native Americanness, Hispanicness, et cetera? But critical anti-racist theory says, no, we've got to marry thought and action. And when we take the mantle of wanting to become anti-racist, we take the theory of how race and racism has prohibited or um, 
or not someone's experience in the world and we turn it into an action. We turn it into a policy that can be implemented that actually changes lives. Is, does that thread kind of make sense? So it went from being sort yeah, of a legal yeah. construct to a sociological um, field to now let's put that theory into action and implement changes. So um, my question is, why has it become a flashpoint among so many and why are people opposed to the teaching of critical race theory? Well, let's be very clear about who's opposed to it. It's white people. Um, just to say it plain. And it might even be a small vocal minority of white people who are up in arms about why should my white children have to learn about things that make them uncomfortable? So there's a misunderstanding in the public about what critical race theory is and why it should be talked about at all. So if we say we can't talk about, we can't in incorporate anything that has to do with race, or um, thinking critically or, or thinking about privilege, then we also can't talk about whiteness. You see, so there's kind of this like, the, one of the problems with whiteness that I have, um, that I really relate to is that we're sort of taught that we don't have a race. We kind of invisible away our racial experience. Instead, whiteness has become a kind of symbol of what is normal, of what is, um, ubiquitous, what is expected, as opposed to also a lived experience of race. And so one of the things that I think parents mostly are saying about we need to get these books out of our libraries is I don't want my children to feel uncomfortable. I don't want them to think that white people were mean. So in Tennessee, they took out books about Ruby Bridges, who was one of the first people to integrate schools in New Orleans, right? And mm -hmm. because in the pictures, there are some white people holding signs and you in faces of rage, we don't want her here, right? And, and the parents are like, I don't want my students, my child to experience a white person as being rageful, angry, unkind. So what we're doing is we're keeping the truth from kids. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're keeping truths from kids that I think kids are very, we are underestimating kids is what we're doing. We're talking about removing these, these pieces of literature and these um, pieces of history from schools and we're underestimating kids' ability to hold, to hold complexity. And I think kids are very capable of it. They may not be able to think in complexity the way that a, an older person can, but they can hold it and go, oh, okay, so this happened. A white kid can see a white person looking angry and say, I don't want to be like that. That's also true, right? A black child who sees himself in a, in a, in a, in a, in a work of literature and feels represented feels like, oh, I too belong. Mm -hmm. and, and in taking these conversations out of classrooms, out of schools, out of the public education arena, we're taking away the child's ability to formulate opinions and identity. And I think that is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. And mostly it's teachers who are not comfortable talking about it. It is not kids in my experience. So I will, I will give you what sounds like a really, really mundane example. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had this thought before, but I, I uh, really, it just popped up in my mind again today when I was reading this book about 
the 10 different kinds of biases that we all have. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a, a point that um, McLaren makes very well. We all have biases. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's so easy to think, oh, no, I don't. I'm not in this. But I had this example that popped up in my mind today. When I was a child, um, there was an introduction of um, a concept in uh, across-the-counter medicine called Band-Aids. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. You know where I'm going with I know this? where you're going with this. Yeah, so one of the big selling points of the new Johnson & Johnson Band-Aid when I was in uh, high school, maybe, or mm -hmm. junior high was, oh, guess what? We're coming out with flesh colored band-aids mm -hmm. and nobody in my demographic ever thought who's flesh mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's exactly right and i think when we think with eyes that have been trained by the majority by the dominant structure in society that's how we learn to see we only learn to expand our vision if we just turn other directions and go, oh, there's more to this story. And there is always more to the story. Um, that takes, I think, a certain amount of humility um, and willingness to go, oh, there's so much more to this story than I was taught, than I thought. Um, but I, I just go back to this idea of, of not trusting that people can and are able to hold more than we think they can. We are an incredibly resilient species. We're an incredibly adaptive species. We've come through difficulty in so many ways and we're still coming through difficulty in so many ways. I think we can hold complex thoughts about ourselves, about our ancestors and about who we are in the world. I think well, we can. Uh, I think, and I don't mean this to sound arrogantly, I think people who have done their work, people who are open to being taught can do exactly what you just said. But people who are at earlier stages of development, and this is a real risky thing about developmental stages because you can make, um, you can fall into making claims of superiority. Right. But if people are not, at, uh, if people are still at, simple stages of faith development, for example, they can't see it. Mm -hmm. You can't see what you can't see. And, um, you know, I have worked with families long enough to know that um, there's some people who are psychologically colorblind. Mm -hmm. It's not that they, I mean, you can stand and argue with them. You can try to reason with them. But if they, if they do not have the receptors to see the color green, they're not going to see the color green. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have a lot of people in our population who um, are, are stuck in biases because they are at very early stages of both emotional and, and intellectual development.
most likely because they were raised by people who also were, who were raised by people who also were, who were raised by people. Uh, ab absolutely. Yeah. And because of what they get exposed to or open themselves to in our culture. I am not a prude. I mean, I, you've been with me long enough to know I can be some pretty uncorked stuff. Oh, but but you're worried um, about what I'm going to say in class. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, and I don't want to stomp on anybody's way they enjoy being entertained. But our entertainment media is so violent. Mm -hmm. And this is what we get exposed to. Mm -hmm. So that we're a violent culture and you tell that to somebody in the center. No, we're not. Yeah. But look at how, what we do to entertain ourselves. I don't think there is a more violent program on television than the news than professional football. Oh, football. Yeah. I think the news is worse, but yeah. Um, do you know, but yeah, it is. It's a violent game. And I think about, um, I've, I've mentioned him before, Resma Minikim. He's a psychologist. I think he's living in Chicago, but he wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands. And one of his premises in, in this, in the book is that this, this country was, this country as we know it. So I'm not talking about pre-colonial America. I'm talking about post-colonial America um, from the 1600s on. And this country was founded by Europeans coming out of the middle ages who had been, who had seen, who had maybe even personally experienced um, abuse uh, trauma to the body, public floggings. Uh, there were, you know, there, it, there, if you did not abide by the powers that be in the European world, you were cast out. You were tortured. That energy came to America and was not transformed. You know, so what, what happened then? These, where, where it made me just kind of sit with a lot of compassion for early settlers and early colonists is they came with an immense amount of seen or experienced trauma in their bodies. And instead of it being transformed, it was transmitted onto Native Americans and then onto Africans and even onto one another. So we've got this founding that is rooted in domination, that is rooted in violence. And 400 years later, we're still seeing the byproducts of that. We still haven't transformed it. Right. Right. Yep. So when you go and you think about all the territorial wars that were fought in Europe and Greece, the Spartan Wars and Peloponnesian Wars and all that, human life was not regarded highly and it was a very, very, very violent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so in kind of coming up with this idea about a nation of democracy and freedom. We had no idea what that looked like. There was not a premise for that. And yeah, I mean, so there's some real heartache that I feel about how long human beings have been dealing with domination structures, how much domination structures are part of our species identification, if you will. And it's hard for me to imagine that it could be any other way. Which makes me sad. Well, in the 
in the in the community that produced the Gospel of John. So we're talking about in the year 90 some odd, 100 and maybe even into um, the latter part of the third century. Uh, these people were nonviolent. Mm -hmm. They were communal. Um, They, they embodied the transformative teaching of Jesus in a way that caused them to attract others in, into their movement. So that the Jesus movement, uh, although it was very diverse up until the time of Constantine, um, it, it was very attractive. And, and the, the people who were in the Jesus movement before Constantine were, became um, quite violently persecuted by the Roman Empire mm -hmm. because they would not give allegiance to Caesar. Right. And um, it's amazing what happened to the movement because prior to Constantine, it would have been unthinkable for somebody who was part of that movement to pick up arms and go to war. Right. But it hadn't been long. It wasn't long until they figured out a way to fight what they called a just war. And look what mainstream Christianity has done here. You belong, you don't. We've set up that same kind of exclu exclusive community. If you don't pray or worship the way that I think you need to, you don't belong. Yeah. So I am uh, I'm not a prophet of doom and gloom, but I'm <laughs> going to say yeah. that um, if our culture doesn't get its act together, our next pandemic is going to be the pandemic that goes under the title of Christian nationalism. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it's already emerging. It's already, it is emerging. Yeah. It is yeah. emerging. Yeah. And... Um, it's a, it's, it's a fight for the soul of the experiment called democracy. And that's where, you know, it's interesting to me how strong of an emotion fear that turns into anger is. Because I see that movement as one led by fear that has become, that has taken the shape of anger and rage. And, well, you know, I, I think this is a very human response. If I, if there is something near and dear to me that I fear that some behavior of yours is going to take away from me, I'm going to react to that. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a very human thing. Like, I mean, you would kill for your children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so some people feel that way about what they call their understanding of the American way of life, or right. their economic system or their neighborhood or whatever. So it, Seems like a really big individuation project is needed. Like, you know, it's it's a it's an identity question in so many ways. Who uh -huh. who, who do I say that I am? What defines me as I am? Um, and it's like we need to individuate from this kind of unhealthy parent called America, and mm -hmm. and and we need to sort of see ourselves as something other than uh, the uh, white individual, proud American, and. Yeah, there is a point where we need to see ourselves as just people, but we need to also in between 
recognize all the ways that our specific embodiments have not lived into the full potential of freedom, love, and compassion. And, right. and, and I do, I think it's, a, it's an individuation project. And I don't know that sort of like collective psychology will be taken up by American culture, you know? And, and then you just go, you know, there's that book, The Tipping Point that defines what a critical mass is. And a critical mass is anywhere between 5% and 25% of a population. It, you quoted Martin Luther King last week. Can a small minority of people become creatively maladjusted so that we can shift, so that we can reach the tipping point? I don't know. Will that work? <laughs> well, what, we're, what I hope that we end up saying Sunday is that we have to live as if that were true. Yes. I love this phrase, and now I'm not remembering where I heard it, but um, the act of defiant hope, mm. just, you know, being defiantly hopeful in a way. Well, I guess people will have to tune in on Sunday to find out what we're going to do about <laughs> cleansing of the temple, what we think about it. Yeah. And more importantly, what its application is for the living of our lives in the setting where we are. Yes. We are not in Central America, where it's much easier, I think, to understand uh, if you live on the edge of poverty and oppression, it's much easier to understand this message than if you live in a position of privilege, which we do. Yeah, I mean, we're the temple that needs to be cleansed, this country. So. Now, um, I'm gonna change the subject drastically okay. before we say goodbye. <laughs> There's another ball game tonight. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to be okay? I'm going to be okay, Bill. Okay. <laughs> I hope for your sake and all the Astros fans' sake and for the city's sake, I hope for they the win. the nuns' sake, the nuns who are there, they are there in an act of spiritual practice, and they want the outcome and deserve the outcome were they there last night mm -hmm. mattress mac paid for them to go i did not see them last yeah. night center field box just behind us the, it's up high and over the center field um, part of the outfield okay yeah all right all right go astros <laughs> okay bye bye